Hello and welcome to Carers Talk, the podcast for carers, where we share advice, information and carers' experiences. My name's Michelle and I'm your host and this podcast is brought to you by Carers Trust Solly Hall. We hope you enjoy. Hello and a very warm welcome to our first episode of our new podcast. We're really excited about this new project because we feel through it we can reach and hopefully connect with more carers in Solly Hall. We know that often carers are very busy people and you don't always have the time to attend our training sessions and our face-to-face meetups and that means that sometimes carers are often missing out on vital information and support. Through this podcast we hope to change that. We want to bring information and support to you so that you can access it when it's most convenient for you and cover topics and issues that can support you in your caring role. We will also be sharing stories and experiences of other carers. It's one thing that we know from our monthly meetups that some of you may have attended is that through sharing um, our experiences of, of being a carer, whether that's the good or the bad, it's very helpful to each other. And this is another thing that we wanted to bring to the podcast so that people who can't attend these meetings can experience that and to feel that connection with other carers. That's why I'm pleased to say that the first episode is of a carer's story. Hazel Carter is an award-winning author who wrote the book Life's Good, It's the Disease, It's the Problem, where she shares her journey through caring for her husband, Alan, who was diagnosed with motor neuron disease in 2017 and sadly passed away in 2019. I hope you enjoy my chat with Hazel and find it as inspiring as I did. Okay, hello Hazel. Thank you so much for joining me on the Carers Podcast. You are the first person to come on to share their story, so thank you very much. As I've mentioned in the introduction about your book and your story with regard to caring for your husband, Alan, I thought it might be good to start from the beginning of how your journey started. Well, first of all, I'm honoured to be the first person. Thank you so much to you and Carers Trust for inviting me. Um, yeah, I guess the story goes back originally to 2006, which is when I met Alan on a blind date mm. on the 14th of June. We'd both been married before. Neither of us had children. But we had a lot of shared interests. And very quickly, we realised we were a great match for each other and entered into a exclusive relationship, which was brilliant. Uh, I have to tell you, I don't think I've ever been so happy in my life. Mm-hmm. And he said the same, actually. Um, we've both gone through a few rough patches. So from the beginning, really, we were a great team. We did lots of golfing and skiing and holidaying and working on our homes together. And then eventually he moved in with me in um, 2008. And I was happy as Larry at that point. Um, But I gradually got to be a little bit frustrated because I wanted to make the relationship permanent, long-term, forever and a day. So eventually... On uh, the 14th of June 2014, we got married, which was exactly the date we'd met eight years earlier. I think that's so lovely. (laughs) We were quite romantic, I have to say. Um, And it was a big wedding. It was a lovely, beautiful occasion. And I really then knew that that was it. My life was complete and I didn't want anyone else and he didn't want anybody else. So we were chugging along nicely, really, um, until 2017 when we were on holiday in September in uh, Turkey. And he said to me at that time, I've got a problem with my right arm and I don't know what it is. He'd noticed that when he played golf or when he was at the gym, 
uh, he, he just lost some strength in his arm. So he went to the doctors. The doctor referred him on for some tests. And then eventually in November, we sat down with a neurologist who said, I'm terribly sorry to tell you, but you've got six months to two years to live. Oh, my gosh. So that was pretty scary. Um, in fact, it was like a massive bombshell. It was so out of the blue. Yeah. Because everything had been so great. And suddenly now things were like disastrous and up in the air. And yeah. emotionally we were all over the show. And um it was tough. It was really tough. That period was terrible. There was a lot of decisions to make quite quickly because if you've only got six months to two years to live, you really can't mess around. And to process that as well. Yeah. Not only, you know, the practical things, but emotionally for mm. both of you, having that news must have, it takes time. Yeah, I don't know. I don't remember really how we processed it. I think we were just crying all the time and mm-hmm. um, and he kept saying, this is not fair on you. And I was thinking, well, if I'm the one who's going to live, you're the one who's going to die. So I was thinking it's just not fair on him. You know, his life was being cut short. But he was ever aware of what it was going to be like for me as a potential carer for him yeah. and then eventually a widow. So in those early days, there were so many decisions we had to make about um, what do we do about the house? Do we move? Do we stay? Do we adapt? When do we tell people? How do we tell people? All of his family lived a long way away. Um, we had a good circle of local friends, but his family were all further afield. So those early phone calls to the family to let them know mm. this news were quite difficult, as you can imagine. Okay. Um, shocking news to his two sisters, shocking news to his nephews and his niece, and then my family and then all of our friends. Just that period of telling everybody what's going on is really hard. Mm-hmm. There's a story on Coronation Street at the moment uh, yeah. with a guy who's got MND and he's going through that process of sharing with his partner and those he knows. Um, and I'm sort of reliving it just watching that. But, yeah. but it's it's so important that the television cover these stories and I, and I wish that I could get on television because I've got so much to tell yeah so but um anyway that's what happened to us gosh and through those I can imagine those weeks and those months of, of trying to process this and kind of getting to grips with your kind of new normal which from what you said you know before you're a very active couple you know you went on holidays you he played golf you both played golf didn't you um he sounded like a very active man and then you know the shock of going from that to that current you know the current situation it must have been a real turning point for you both it definitely was he was very active he was very fit he didn't drink a lot he hardly never smoked um he wasn't overweight so Going from being a very normal human being to somebody with a terminal diagnosis was was dreadful. And initially, of course, the only problem was his one arm wasn't working, but we already knew from our research that progressively he was going to become 100% paralysed. We also knew that he would lose the ability to swallow and his breathing muscles would also be affected. There was also a risk that he might get uh, frontal temporal dementia, which would affect his cognitive ability, but apparently that's quite rare most people with MND just become paralyzed and unable to care for themselves and care means 24 7 care when somebody is that paralyzed and it's that that knowing I guess what's ahead as well with that with that disease I can imagine that was terrifying for you both well I did do quite a lot of research I looked on all the websites and MND association have a great website 
And we were supported initially by Marie Curie Hospice in Solihull. Uh, in fact, all through our journey, they were with us and the OT and the physiotherapist between them gave us an awful lot of tips and help initially. And without their insight and help as to, you know, what was a good idea, what was a bad idea, um, we may well have made some bad decisions, but we were very fortunate. We live in an area where there's good support for people with this type of condition. Around the UK, that's not always the case. Mm. Um, but also, there's a lot of confusion, I think, about how MND varies to things like MS and Parkinson's and others. Yes. But at the end of the day, they're all neurological conditions and they all affect people very similarly. The difference is with MND, um, it's terminal. There's no treatment. There's nothing, no cure, no surgery. Mm. You just know from day one that that's it. You've got to get on with either living your life or become a recluse in your own home. Mm. Alan, luckily for me, made the decision that he wanted to live life as much as possible while he could. He stopped work straight away um, and we set about going um, on our last ever foreign holiday. We managed to get to Vietnam, which was an interesting challenge because he was by then he was in a wheelchair. That was uh, five months after diagnosis. So I managed to push him all around uh, <laughs> So, um, all around the uh, the towns and places in in Vietnam, um, which we made fun, we made light of it, but it, it is a challenge. But not long after we got back from that, um, his breathing started to fail, and so within six months, both of his arms and legs weren't working very well, and his breathing wasn't working very well. So I was suddenly becoming a nurse mm. more than just a carer. I was becoming a nurse. I was I was going to say, um, with regard to, you know, a lot of people don't realise they are carers uh, when they're going through something like this. They think, I'm a wife, you know, this is what I do for my husband, or it could be, I'm a mum, that's what I do for my child. Was there a moment for you where you actually kind of, you had that moment of, I'm actually a carer? Was there, was there information about it? Has anyone said anything about you being a carer? Um, I don't think there was a single moment. I think from day one, I realised that was my destiny with, you know, once the diagnosis came. And when you marry somebody, it is in sickness and in yes. health. So I kind of knew straight away that's what was going to happen. I was already a carer, by the way. My mom had uh, vascular dementia. Mm. So I was already looking after her needs and um, finances and things. So I think it was an extension of working, you know, to look after mom just ended up looking after Alan as well. But I carried on working initially. So the, there was a point, I guess, where I realised I couldn't just be Hazel, the working woman. There was a point where I had to dedicate all my time to looking after Alan and that came quite quickly. That's a big step as well, isn't it? Um, yes. Because I know your career was important to you, wasn't it? And and I know you mentioned to me as well that for a while you found it important to keep working, didn't you? That's true, yeah, because... Having been told that Alan was terminal, of course, your world has changed instantly and your future's gone. The future you thought you had has gone. Yeah. The plans you were making all have to be revised. And I couldn't stop work. It was the one thing that I knew I could do that felt safe. Mm -hmm. I could go to work. I could be with my work colleagues, even though they were asking me lots of questions about how's Alan, how's things going. I could concentrate on doing something that took my mind away from the caring and, and the situation. Mm. So work was an anchor for me initially. Um, and I think I needed that just to 
give me that little bit of processing time like you mentioned earlier. Mm. But there came a point where it was too much. I couldn't keep being one person split in three ways, no. you know, a working person, a caring for, caring for mum and caring for Alan. So I can't even remember when I stopped work, but I stopped. Um, and my company were brilliant. I was very lucky. So that was the point, I guess, where officially I was a carer. And, yes. And, and I never, but I never really thought of it that way. I was just Hazel, Alan's wife, wanting to do the very best I could. And I yes. suspect lots of people are in that boat. They just want to do the very best for their loved one. I wanted Alan to be happy. I wanted him to be comfortable. I wanted him to be safe. And while he was still capable of looking after himself in the early stages, I was still leading a normal life. I was seeing my friends. There was one incident I remember where I went out for dinner, saw my friends, and he was at home. He was happy to stay in and just relax, watch telly. And when I got home, I found him on the floor um, in a pool of blood. He'd fallen backwards. His legs had given way. He'd fallen backwards, hit his head on a coffee table, and it had split open. Luckily, he was still alive. My first instinct was to ring 999. I've mm-hmm. never done that in my life. That was a bit of a shock. Um, and we got him off to hospital and got him stitched up and brought him home again. And that was the day I decided he was never to be left alone again. So even though he could get up and move about a bit, I thought, this is not going to happen. I'm not going to run this risk of him falling. And sadly, I do know of a lady whose husband had an Indini fell down the stairs and it ended his life even more prematurely. Gosh. And it is that worry, isn't it, of, of leaving that person, even when there is other care involved, you know, paid carers and it's, it's that knowing that you feel that no one can look after them quite like you. That's which, right. Yeah. Which is true, isn't it? Yeah, you, you take on, whether you, whether you realise it or not, you take on this, this role that is, I am the one responsible. I am the one who's dealing with this. I am in control. I'm the one who knows the big picture. I'm the one making all the appointments, the one making notes of all of those appointments. I'm the one who's following up on all of those appointments. Um, I'm the one who's organising the care for the for my husband or whoever it is you're caring for, um, as well as managing the household budget and the household, you know, things need to be done still. Yeah. The house can't just be left to go wild and the garden and the cars and all the things you need to be doing. They all have to be done at the same time. So you suddenly become this person with all this workload on your shoulders. Um, and I think you just fall into that. You just do it. It's yeah. a, it seems perfectly natural and you don't realize you don't look objectively at yourself and realize what's going on so many people said to me you need to take care of yourself you need to look after yourself and I'm yeah. thinking well I am aren't I? I don't know what else I can do but actually I wasn't looking after myself that well yeah and you don't eat properly you don't sleep properly certainly when you're caring for somebody 24 7 you are always on your guard. You worry that they might choke in the night or if they need to go to the loo in the night, they can't do it for themselves. You have to help them. Yeah. And Alan by then was on a ventilator and often the mask would slip off his face and the alarm would go off or he would call out um, and I would attend to whatever it was he needed in the night. He eventually ended up sleeping downstairs and I was upstairs. Mm. And we we had um, like a baby monitoring device. Oh, yes, yes. So if Many he did, people use them. Yeah, if he did call me, I'd hear him and I could go downstairs. But I don't think I slept well for you know, well over a year. Really. No, no and, that, and that's another thing that even if you take a carer out of their caring role, their mind's still with the person they care for. 
and you know having that break a lot of them are running on adrenaline and don't know mm-hmm. um and that's something that we look at in our some of our stress management workshops is how to recognize you are you are stressed um and so many carers don't realize don't realize that well i don't think there's enough awareness of what people like you do um i mean i i was aware that i was entitled to for example um a carer's allowance but i assumed and thought that i wouldn't be eligible because we had a you know, we had some savings in the bank. But so when Alan stopped work and I stopped work, there's no more income coming in. But I didn't think I had entitlements. And I've, I've since learned that there's quite a lot of things we probably were entitled to. But there isn't a manual. You don't, you don't get given a manual as a carer when you first start being a carer. Maybe somebody should come up with one. Yeah. Um, a checklist of did you realise you're entitled to this, this, this and this? And, oh, by the way, you know, these are the things that you can get help where you yeah. can go to get help but nobody prepares you for this you don't go through your whole life thinking well one day I'm going to be a carer and yeah. therefore I need to know all this stuff it just happens and you learn on the job yeah and you, you're doing the best you can but there's nobody's trained you for it no which is partly why you know when I was writing the book I was realizing that this book is going to help carers of any disease, not just motor neuron disease, mm-hmm. because there are tips in it and there is guidance in there and there is talk about self-help and self-care. You know, through this job, I've seen people caring for a variety of different illnesses, whether that be dementia, stroke, mental illness, caring for a child. And there's common themes that run through all of their situations. And when we have carers groups and they talk to each other, it's very powerful because they are experts of their own experience and they they know what each other are going through um, in, in that way and they can process and talk through their difficulties. D- did you have any support like that? Yes, there is. For people with motor neuron disease, there are support groups run by volunteers. The Motor Neuron Disease Association has local groups, if you like, and they run um, sessions uh, usually at the local hospice, which is where ours was, Marie Curie Solely Hall in our case. And um, we used to go to those. I didn't feel very comfortable at first going to those because we knew we were going to meet other people who were further down the line yes. than we were. But we did go. Um, and I was extremely glad we did because if nothing else, it gave me the chance to meet other women in particular, caring for their husbands. Mm-hmm. I must say that MND is common across men and women, and it's all ages, and it doesn't matter what your ethnic background is, it, this disease can get you. So I made friends with the people who were the wives of the gentlemen who were, already had the condition. And it was as a result of going to those meetings that um, things like, should I have a peg fitted into my tummy so I can be tube-fed, was a decision Alan originally said no to. Mm-hmm. When we met other people who had already had one of those tubes fitted, it suddenly felt like not such a scary thing. And he eventually did uh, go to hospital to have a tube fitted because towards the end of his life he couldn't swallow. Um, so you have those things fitted for precautionary reasons, not necessarily because you need them. Yeah, It's just a let's have one fitted just in case. But also going and seeing other people um, and talking about the issues and challenges that they were going through mm. made me feel less alone and I think it made Alan feel less alone. Yeah. Um, and some of those people are still friends with me today. Alan died four years ago and I still see those widows, they're now widows like I am, and I still see some of those other people who have MND who luckily have this lower version and they're going to live longer with it. Um, so 
yes, we did get that kind of collective support. But also, privately, Alan and I were struggling with our own grief. Um, And I think I slipped into quite a depressed state at one point. Um, And it was suggested to us by one of the people from the Marie Curie that I should access bereavement support. Now, that was a bit of a shock because I thought, hang on a minute, I'm not bereaved. Yeah. Um, But... Again, it was absolutely worthwhile me going to that. And eventually Alan came to that as well. And I learned a new phrase, which I didn't know existed. That is anticipatory grief. Yeah, we hear it. We hear a lot of that. Well, I didn't even know it existed. I'm a grown-up 60-plus-year-old woman. <laughs> <laughs> but I'd never come across it in my life. And I don't think I don't think many people have. It's it's not something, again, that you probably would come across unless you, you were met in those those situations, really. Yeah. And but there, that's what happened. We were told you're in anticipatory grief. And when you, when I thought about it, I understood it. Um, I'd already suffered a loss. I'd lost the husband that I'd once had, even though he hadn't died. I'd lost the normal life that I had with my Absolutely. normal, previously normal husband. And we'd lost our future and we'd lost so many other things. We'd both stopped working by then. And so when I really think about it, yeah, it's quite, it's quite, Obvious, I was in some kind of grief. Yeah. Um, and I thought after Alan died that my grief would be short because of that. But that's not turned out to be the case. I still feel four years down the line. I have terrible moments where I think of him or what happened to him. And I well up and I get sad and I can cry my heart out for hours on end. Um, a few days ago, it was the anniversary of his passing. And I was so upset on that day. But I guess that's a measure of how much love there was. And I'm so grateful that I had the opportunity for such love. Yes. We, we were together in total from 2006 to 2019. That's 13 years of absolute wonderful love and life together, albeit the last 18 months were tough. And it's those memories that, that are so special, aren't they? Those memories that you had and, and they help carry you through, don't they, through grief? Yeah, they certainly do now. I've uh, I've spent the last three odd years through lockdown, etc., writing the book that I know you're going to mention, and that has helped me do some processing. But everybody says time is a healer, and you know it'll get better in time. I don't know if it ever will, and I don't know if I ever want it to. I think that I will always love Alan. Of course, he'll always be a big part of my life. And I never want to forget him. So, and now I've written the book and now I'm doing all these podcasts and public speaking engagements. I'm, I'm never going to stop talking about him. Um, he was a special man and it was a special time in my life. But now I'm on a mission. I'm on, a, you know, I have a purpose that's important to me now to raise awareness of what the life of a carer is like. I'm not looking for pity or sympathy and I'm not taking any money from the book. It's all to raise money for charity. But I do think that carers are the unsung heroes. Definitely. They need to be considered and thought of differently to how they are. In fact, most of them, most people don't even know if they're looking at a carer. You don't, you don't wear a badge that nope. says I'm a carer. No. Even with Alan in a wheelchair, people thought maybe he just had an accident. He was going to get better. Yes. Um, so there isn't any way of showing yourself that you are a carer. You just are one. Mm-hmm. Um, so nobody is singing the praises of carers as, as much as they ought to. But I feel like I want to 
spread the gospel about what it's like to be a carer, the challenges, the ups and downs, and also the very, you know, the important aspect of looking after yourself while you're looking after the other person. Definitely. And I think through what you're doing with your book and sharing your story, I think that is how we raise that awareness by everyone sharing their stories. And because people will see each other in those stories, whether that is someone with the same diagnosis or someone going through the same, you know, struggles as, as, as you did. Now, you mentioned that you went through um, quite a low point. Um, what, what do you feel were some of the hardest things that you had to deal with with being a carer? I think it's the moments where you're not caring. Okay. When you're alone, when you go to bed at night, um, you can deal with the caring aspects in the day because you're focusing on the person you love. But for me, it's when I was alone. Um, so quite early on, I started journaling. Um, and that was the way I got it out of my head. I got you know, all my thoughts down on paper in a, in a book that I just hand wrote every night. Um, or if I was too tired, I would wait a couple of nights and catch up and write it down. And funny enough, poems came into my head, which I've also put into the book that I've written. Um, so it was when I was alone. It was when there was nobody around to talk to. or And I felt I couldn't always share my feelings with, with Alan because I didn't want to upset him. I think the tough stuff was when he realised that I had pulled back, I think is a good word. I'd pulled back slightly emotionally. And I think that's because I was run ragged, I was tired. But also we had lost a little bit of ourselves in the whole situation yeah. that we were in. And one day he said to me, I feel like I'm losing you. Mm-hmm. That was horrible. Yes. Because I did still love him of deeply. Course. But he had recognised that something had changed. And that's when I had to give myself a good talking to because he still needed to be the focus of my life. But I'd drowned myself in sorrow at that point. And uh, it was necessary for me to refocus on him. And, and I'm glad that he raised that because we could have gone for weeks and weeks with him feeling terrible, me feeling terrible. Mm-hmm. But by him saying to me, I feel like you're drifting away. That was a bit of a kick up my backside, if you like, to make me refocus. Um, And and it's strange relationships. You know, you're not just husband and wife anymore. There's a there's that new element, you know, involved, and um, that that's why you know we feel it is so important to Mm. to also look at the relationship. Yeah, and it's. I mean, we'd we'd always been close and we'd always talked to each other, but I think you you get busy, busy with the with the day job. I mean, the day job involved washing him, dressing him, shaving him, cleaning his teeth, feeding him, mm-hmm. dealing with the vet, vet, respiratory masks. Um, if he wanted to go for a pee, there was you know we had to get a pee bottle. If he wanted to do a number two, we had to somehow get him onto the loo. He how we ended up with hoists in our house. We ended up with a profile hospital bed in our house, um, and, and there was so many. And there was there was obviously medicines involved as well, which I was having to do. I mean, we eventually did get carers, um, and they would come in in the morning for like an hour and a half, two hours to do the morning regime, and then they'd come back at lunchtime, and they'd come back at tea time, and they'd come back at bedtime. But with certain diseases such as this one, it's a twenty four seven job. Yeah. So. And even when the carers are doing their work, you're kind of overseeing it and looking at oh, them and yeah. thinking, are they doing that right? Should they be, do I need to train them differently? And I, I did get to the point where 
um, I had to take some steps back because it was too much. And, and that was a good thing as well. It made me think, well, is there a better way? So I used to organise for people to come and stay with Alan and sit with him for an hour or two at a time. Mm. And he wanted to see other people other than me and they wanted to see him. And Alan's family were brilliant. They came and spent time with Alan and stayed. And at one point he even insisted I went on a holiday. So I did go away in January 2019. But it was on the proviso that if anything happened to him, I'd be straight back. And also on the proviso that I would speak to him every day by um, FaceTime. Otherwise, I would not have gone. Yeah. Um, but I did, you know, start to get help for me in the form of, you know, just a regular massage or just time to go off and do a bit of shopping for myself or go and be with friends. And all that happened because I arranged for other people to spend time with Alan. And they had to be prepared to do you know, some yeah, of the caring yeah, things. So I had to train them first. I had to check that was all right with him, check it was all right with them. And it worked out. It was it was good that he had a variety of people with him over time, albeit that he always used to say he only really wanted to see me. <laughs> Bless him. And, and I think that's lovely that, you know, he recognised that for you, that, you know, you needed a break and and that you took that, those opportunities um to look after your own well-being because it, it is so important. What what do you feel helped you cope when things got hard or difficult? When they were at their absolute hardest and I was in the middle of the night feeling incredibly down, I phoned the Samaritans. That was one thing that helped okay. me because in the middle of the night, there's not many people you can talk to. No. Um, and there was a lady who lives in Australia who's a friend of mine who I had a long conversation with in the middle of the night once. But there was definitely one occasion in the middle of the night where I was really low and things were really bad. And I had to ring the Samaritans uh, because there was nobody else I felt I could ring. Lots of people have said, oh, you can call any time. But I can't, you can't do that. You can't ring people in the middle yeah. of the night. So I rang the Samaritans and they were brilliant. Thank goodness they exist. During the middle of the day, I think the general thing that helped me the most was being able to talk, meeting the bereavement counsellor, sharing my deepest worries and fears with her and her helping me put things into perspective. Um, because there's definitely things you cannot say to your loved one who's dying. You just wouldn't no. you wouldn't say to them how bad you feel because it's only going to upset them. Um, but, uh, yeah, those were the things that helped being able to talk, being able to share my feelings. Even though I knew there was no real answers, it was just getting it off my chest, really. And I don't think that can be, you know, it's valued enough, really, just having that someone to talk to. And, I mean, that's a big part of our job. We we have carers that call us for emotional support. And just that talking, they say, I feel so much better that someone's listened. And, and they can't talk. They have a lot of family but they can't talk to them because they're in that situation and they're scared they might upset them or, you know. So just having someone outside of it just to talk to about how you really feel is really important. Yeah, absolutely. I remember, I can't remember who it was that said it, but somebody said to me, oh, why don't you just sit down and take a break? And I just wanted to rip their head off. I was so angry with that statement because... I felt that same. My husband's dying and I don't want to take a break. I want him to be looked after and cared for properly. Mm. But 
that was, I guess, because I was at the end of my tether on that particular occasion. But there were people who said the odd occasional thing. And I remember thinking, if you were in my position, you would never say that. Yes. If you'd been in my position, you'd never think what you've just thought. And I don't think anyone can really understand it until they are losing their spouse, in my case. And goodness knows how terrible it must be for someone losing a child. I don't think I could have coped with that if I'd have had children. I think if your parents... You know, you've had your parents in your life, all your life, and, and losing a parent is terrible and horrible. But the person you choose to live with 24-7 as an adult is your best friend, should be your best friend. Yeah. Your lover, your guardian, the person who loves you more than anybody, who knows you better than anybody. When that person's life is coming to an end, it just feels like your world's coming to an end. Yeah. But what I really loved um, about your story um, and your relationship with Alan and how you tackled this terrible disease was your positive attitude. Can you explain a little bit more about that? Sure, yeah. We, um, once the initial shock of everything was out of the way, we made a few rules. <laughs> uh, one of them was we weren't going to wallow in self-pity because there was no point and we didn't want other people to be pitying us. Yeah. Um, the other one was we weren't going to get angry. Neither of us by nature are angry people, but this could have tested anybody's anger. Um, but we said let's not bother with anger because anger is a wasteful emotion. Let's channel any strong negative feelings we have into turning it into something positive. So during the course of 18 months, we went, apart from to Vietnam in April of 2018, we went to Wales twice, we went to Scotland, and we spent a week in Whitby in uh, Yorkshire. And in Whitby, by the time we got to Whitby, he was 100% paralysed. And it was like having a 10-stone, 6-foot baby who could not do anything for themselves. Absolutely 100% of the time he needed to be looked after. Yeah. And I hired a private carer to come in in the mornings and the evenings, but the rest of the time it was all down to me. And that I didn't mind that on that occasion. We were in a lovely adapted cottage in Whitby, and I knew this was possibly going to be our last ever holiday, so it was important for us to have the best quality time oh together, gosh, which we hard. did. We managed to watch the whole box set of Game of Thrones. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. In fact, during the whole of Alan's illness, I think we watched 18 different box sets. Uh, we watched The Crown. We watched Gavin and Stacey. We watched every episode of Frasier, mm. um, as well as Game of Thrones. So we um, we did indulge ourselves a little bit that way. Um but that's good. It was sitting, holding hands, just watching stuff. Those moments, yeah. those moments, you know, that I'm sure you treasure even more now. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, I think that was the, what a wonderful way. And we had we had mascots as well. We had not mascots. We had, um, what do you call mottos. Oh, yeah. Uh, one was where there's a will, there's a way. Um, so we used to go to the cinema. We used to go to the theatre and to shows. And I found out quite late on that if you're a carer, you get to go free. I wish I'd found that out from the beginning. Yeah. yeah. Um, and there was one crazy incident. We were in the th we were in the cinema when Alan's uh, alarm was beeping on his chair, and I didn't know what it was. And it turned out not to be the chair alarm. It turned out to be the respirator alarm. And I had to whiz him out of the cinema and get him home, otherwise he might have passed away. That was a bit of a drama. But, you know, we looked back on these things and we learned lessons from them. But... We did as much as anybody could humanly possibly do. Um, 
And we invited people to our house to have uh, barbecues with us. And then we said to them, well, you're going to have to cook it because they too busy looking after me. <laughs> so people used to come to our house and we'd make them do the cooking. Um, and there were some lovely people from our golf club who used to come and just read to Alan while I got a bit of a break. Mm-hmm. But we did, you know, we, we lo- I looked for ways of him having the best experiences. And for me, that meant creating great memories. Yeah. I surprised him on his 64th birthday. Um, I managed to get him to go to the golf club under false pretenses. And while we were there, uh, a whole bunch of people turned up in another room and I moved him into that room and he looked around and he said, oh, I know all these people, why are they here? And then the penny dropped uh, and we had a fabulous 64th birthday. Unfortunately, he died three weeks before his 65th birthday. But even his funeral was turned into a positive occasion. Oh, how wonderful. Um, we had lots of beautiful songs that he'd... We, we met the funeral director before Alan ever died. Um, and the funeral director said he wished more of his clients did this because it gave us a chance to... For Alan to say what he wanted. Yes. Um, we we spent the first six months of him being ill, putting so many things in place, getting the will sorted out, asking power of attorney, sorting out the bank accounts. He wanted to do all those things. I was yeah. happy to just get on with enjoying life, but he wanted to put all these things in place so that I didn't have to after he died. Yeah. And I'm glad he did because it did take away some of the challenges. So we spent all our time not getting angry, not doing self-pity and not asking stupid questions. And one of those questions was, why me? Why did this happen to me? We banned those types of questions because there were no answers to that kind of question. Yeah. And you can go around in ever-decreasing circles thinking, why did I get this? Why did this happen to me? And we stopped asking those questions of ourselves and each other. So they, those were the things that helped us with our mental health. Yes. And I'm a big believer that if you can do things, no matter what it is, to look after your mental health, while all this stuff is going on, it, it, it gives you the opportunity to be a bit more at peace. Mm-hmm. And I think there was a point along the way where Alan accepted he was going to die and I accepted he was going to die. And at that time, I think we were able to enjoy our time together even more. Yes. It became more precious. Time became precious and spending it well became precious. Mm-hmm. None of that would have happened had we not accepted our situation. So I think acceptance is so critical. Yeah, I think so, definitely. And and I think what you have done with your book and, it, you know, explaining and sharing your story, I mean, what a legacy, you know, for him and his life and this, this, you know, turning something so traumatic and terrible into something so positive. I'm sure he'd be very, very proud of you and, and, and how you... <laughs> Well, I hope there's an afterlife because then I can tell him all about it. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. I'm sure he's been, yeah, he'll be with you every step of the way. I mean, and I think with regard to caring, like, like you mentioned, no one no one hands you a pamphlet and goes, oh, you're a carer. It can happen sudden. It can be gradual. Um, and sometimes having the right information at the right time is so important. Yeah. Like you say, now you're finding out all of, all of these different things. You know, it's one of our missions that, you know, carers have that information and are supported right, right from the beginning Yeah, and the difference that that can make. I think we, looking back now, it's easy for me to see, we focused on the disease and how the disease was going to affect Alan and all the things we needed to do to be prepared for that. And I didn't think to look into things like carers' trust and see that there was help for me. 
I wish I'd done that in hindsight <laughs> now, but uh, it's a wonderful thing, hindsight. Um, but, yeah, if more carers turn to organisations like yours and maybe even buy my book and read my book, they'll get insight and help and ideas and tips. And as I say, I think mental health is, is really key in all of this for both the person with the disease and the person who's looking after them, that loved one. So with regard to your, your book, how can people purchase it? Well, the uh, the best way is to go onto the website, which is lifesgoodbook.co.uk. They can't get it from Amazon or a bookshop because Amazon and bookshops take too much money off the sales I see. tickets. So it's twelve ninety nine a copy. If they go to that website, they can arrange for it to be posted to them anywhere in the UK. I also am doing talks around the place. In September, the 12th of September, I'm talking at Marie Curie Solihull at 6 o'clock. People can contact me via that website if they want to just reach out to me. Yeah. Um, or And there is a list of some of the talks I'm doing on there. So that's the best way to buy it. Or if they come along to one of my talks, I'll always have copies of the book with me. That's the only way, really. Yeah. And on our website uh, and our social media, we will also be pushing, um, you know, raising awareness for the book. And, you know, because the proceeds, what what charities are benefiting from the proceeds? Okay, well, 100% of all the money goes to charity. I don't want to make any money out of this. Um, so the three are Motor Neuron Disease Association, Marie Curie Hospice, and Mighton Hospices in Warwickshire, because those were the three charities that supported us through the whole thing. Wonderful. Uh, We'll also have a link to Hazel's uh, website for the book uh, if you want to do it that way as well. I'm also interested in people contacting me uh, to give talks. For me, giving talks is more important now than anything. Um, So I'm happy to travel anywhere in the UK. I don't charge for doing a talk, but I obviously would like to bring books with me for people to purchase if they're interested. I'm involved with the Open University trying to help them with their death, dying and bereavement modules. Um, some Methodist churches have already asked me to talk. Hospices are asking me to do talks. I'm very interested to do talks for groups, women's groups, church groups, anywhere, WI, Lions, you name it, I'll go. So they can reach me on um, hazel at lifesgoodbook.co.uk if they just want to email me or they can go on the website and contact me through that. Thank you. And definitely, um, hopefully we'll work together again in the future. Um, thank you very much for coming um, and sitting with me and talking and sharing your, your story. I know that it will be so much value to other carers. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you, Michelle. It's been very, very nice seeing you again. Okay. 